We're in Acts 15, as you probably know, this is the most important chapter in the book in many ways because it, it, it sort of summarizes the challenges of, of, uh, of the gospel in a pluralistic world, which is what the Greco-Roman world was. It's also the midpoint of the book, if that's important. When, uh, this is the fall of A.D. 49. The first missionary journey of Paul is completed. As you know, the previous chapter, chapter 14, detailed that for us. And as we, we start this, I want to remind you of a couple of things. This is really important um, to, to kind of keep this in the forefront of your mind and thinking as you look at this chapter. <clears throat> the church, when it was planted, if you think just a Pentecost event in, in Acts chapter 2, was all Jews even the Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora who were in Jerusalem at that time for the various festivals and so on, are the ones who heard the message and responded, 3,000. And then subsequent to that, a series of other events. So by the time you're in Acts chapter 5, the Jerusalem church is about 10,000. And then, if you remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We're now in the uttermost parts of the earth with the first missionary journey starting. And you and I are still living in that phase, if you will. But as the church is uh, moving out and following what the Lord said, and it gets into Samaria, who are those people? They're not Jews. They called them half-breeds, but they're not fully Jews. And then in Acts 10, you have Peter in Caesarea leading Cornelius and his whole household and friends to the Lord, and they're Gentiles. And then the first missionary journey of Paul, although he speaks in Jewish synagogues, and that's where he starts, he's largely ministering in Gentile territory. And so by the time of the Jerusalem Council, the number of Christians, I mean, if you want to use that label, far is far, far more numerous in terms of Gentiles than Jews. Another way of saying it, by the time you're in AD 49, the number of, of Christians in the Eastern Mediterranean world at least three to one at Gentiles to Jews. And so this is creating for the Jewish Christians, those who have become Christians but come out of Judaism. It means that they are understanding that Jesus is their Messiah and understanding that he has fulfilled all of the prophecies. Someone added them up one time. There's like 537 of them in terms of the first advent. He's fulfilled all of them. But they're still struggling with some identity issues. Do I have to turn my back on 1,500 years of my tradition, which is what it would have been at that time? Um, I, I no longer practice any of the traditions. I no longer observe any of the holidays. And so among, I'm, not talking about the, I'm not talking about the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. I'm not talking about Jews who have come to know Christ. And so it is creating a crisis and it has the potential to split the church in this very, you know, AD 49 is only about 13, well, 16 years approximately after Jesus ascended back to the Father. So, I mean, this is exploding across the Eastern Mediterranean world, but you're at a crisis point. And so the Jerusalem Council is going to try to, and will successfully resolve this issue. And it's one I want to spend a great deal of time on. So um, 
I don't, there's no way, particularly since it's noon already, there's no way we're going to finish this chapter. So we're just going to get started on it. So the first, I'm going to divide it in this way. The first five verses is the issue. The issue is articulated in the first five verses. And then verses 6 through 11, the Apostle Peter stands up and defends what he's been doing. And that will pretty much silence those who are critical of what's going on. And then in verses 12 through 21, the Apostle James, now this is not John's brother, the sons of Zebedee, this is James, the brother of Jesus. By now he's the head of the Jerusalem church. He will propose a compromise. And then the rest of the chapter, or at least most of the rest of the chapter, is a letter they composed to send out to all the churches and how that is dispensed in throughout the Eastern Mediterranean world. So it's, it's, really, it's really an important point, and it's reflecting what happens when the gospel breaks down, now again, it's only Jew and Gentile, but breaks down all, all of the barriers between people. Because the gospel is proclaiming that at the cross, everyone's equal. But the Jews are saying, all right, well, we sort of agree with that, but man, we're the inside people. We're the chosen people. We have all this inside track. You mean we got to give up all this stuff? And so it's just, it's, 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 for me, it's an understandable issue to a lot that's going on in our world. You know, a, a, a world that's very diverse, and very pluralistic, and you have people coming to Christ from all these different backgrounds, and they come into the church. What do we do with them? Because generally speaking, you look at, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say the most segregated moment of the week is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And to a degree, that's still true. In Omaha, Nebraska, there are a lot of churches. But you go to the typical evangelical church, it's either all white or all black. It's not mixed. I mean, that's just, and it's the same with, I mean, when I was president, I, I had a, a significant ministry I purposely developed with the Hispanic churches in South Omaha because I looked at that as a potential source of a lot of potential students that we could draw in and minister because the Hispanic church is exploding growth. I was working with 24 pastors, and we were getting a lot of Hispanic students, but because of that, it was all the, well, one, they aren't real proficient in English, and so you've got all these issues of how you're going to grade their papers when they're thinking in Spanish, but writing in English. I mean, it's all of these issues. That's what's going on here. And so verse 1 of chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now, the setting for this is Antioch. That, that, that's because the very end of chapter 14, you were in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas have come back to the missionary journey. They've reported to the church and so on. Now they're in Antioch. And so a group of people from Jerusalem have come down. Remember, Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level, going down to Antioch and teaching the brothers. And this is what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So I mean, just think about this. Probably, this is the group that's mentioned down in verse 5, the party of the Pharisees. These are Pharisees who have come to know Christ, who have come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're struggling with, what do we break with in terms of our past traditions? 
And so you have a group of Jews in Antioch teaching this Gentile church to be saved. You must put your faith in Jesus plus be circumcised. Now, why are they saying that? Customs. Pardon? Because it is their customs. This is what it's it's stronger than the custom. The Mosaic law. It, it, well, it's stronger. It's not the Mosaic covenant. It's another covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the mark of our key identity. We are the children of Abraham. And because we're the children of Abraham, that covenantal relationship into which he entered with God was marked by circumcision, Genesis 17. And so they're saying, listen, in Genesis 12, 3, part of the covenant is God said to Abraham, in you, through you, all the nations will be blessed. That blessing is now coming. It's Jesus, it's the gospel. So it only is reasonable to us that everybody take upon the mark of circumcision. But do you see how they put it? In order to be saved, you must be circumcised. You may choose to be circumcised, no problem. But they're not saying it's a choice. If you want to, they're saying to be saved, you must be circumcised. So now what's the gospel? It's faith in Jesus Christ plus doing something. Now, I don't, I don't mean to stretch it, but in a sense, you could argue it's faith plus works. It's faith plus doing something. You're never saved unless you're circumcised. So this changes the whole dynamic of the gospel. When Paul was up in Lystra, or when he is you know, assumed to be uh, he and Barnabas, Zeus and, and, and Hermes and all of that. Are they telling these Gentiles you've got to be circumcised? That's not what they're saying. When Paul speaks in Acts 17 to the, the, the philosophers in the Areopagus in, in Athens, does he say, you must be circumcised? I mean, they would look at him and say, what? I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's adding something that's potentially lethal to the church. Because if they're going out to the Greco-Roman world and saying, you've got to be circumcised and believe that Jesus is your Savior, it's changing the whole dynamic of everything that's going on. Yeah, they're trying to say to the Gentiles, you're not qualified. Can't be. And, well, yes. Culturally, culturally and ethically, you're not qualified. So to become that, you've got to be circumcised right. to become like us. Yeah who are the covenant people, and then believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So are they asking people to be circumcised or, ask, or saying that they are unique because they are circumcised and they are the only ones who are worthy of some, being saved? Some of both of that, I think. Well, I think, it, I think that's in a way that's right. It's, but they're saying to them, you must, I mean, look at the link. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's saying something. The gospel is... Faith in Jesus Christ plus being circumcised. So you must take on that identity of the covenant people from whom Jesus came, and you all the nations will be blessed, God said to Abraham. So this is a very significant argument that these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem are making in Antioch. I, I don't recall in my limited knowledge that Christ ever preached circumcision. He did not. He did not. He did not. He talked a lot about the Sabbath, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, but he never he never addressed the issue of circumcision. 
Jim certainly did not command it. Yeah, so if, if he's the fulfillment of, That's the, right. of the prophecies, then, then they, they don't have a foot. That's right. But he himself was circumcised. So oh, then, sure. Oh, why, sure. This is why we say if you want to follow his example. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Circumcised. But opening the door for circumcision, even though it's a small thing, that will open the door for the law. And then well, see, and that's why you, you go down to verse 5, they broaden it, as we'll get to in a minute. Fred, did you? Well, I, I was uh, wanting to bring up the fact that someone I, I thought, re- remember reading that <clears throat> they became circumcised to identify with, um, with the Jews. Paul, Paul does that to, yeah. to Timothy when they're in Jerusalem. Yeah. But that's to neutralize the issue among the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. It's not to add to salvation. He no, says, I, do no. that, I did this out of freedom, but I did it to neutralize the issue. Okay. I wanted them to focus on Christ and who he is, not the issue that Timothy's not circumcised. Because Timothy's from Lystra, he's a Gentile. And so Paul agrees to do that simply to neutralize the issue among the leadership in Jerusalem, the Jew, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. So, so that he could witness effectively to the Jews as well. I become all things to all men and some. To a Jew, I become a Jew. To a Gentile, that's exactly right. First Corinthians nine, and he's, that's the illustration of why he did what he did. All right, now, verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So, I mean, that's, that's Luke's, remember Luke's the author, that's Luke's way of saying Paul and Barnabas come unglued and begin to sit down and using, and, and that word debate is not just a surface or a very shallow. This is a detailed, well thought through, well argued debate. They would have presented to them all of the reasons this is wrong for you to insist on this. So, I mean, the debate, the dissension, it's dissension, the word there is schism. It's, it's, it's the, the potential of creating a schism in the church. I mean, this is early, for goodness sakes. This is 16 years into the movement. And it's already splitting on a fundamental, I should say, potentially splitting over a fundamental issue. What is that issue? The nature of the gospel. And so, how do they then agree to, to deal with this? Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, we don't know who they are, from the Antiochian church, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, because this came from Jerusalem, these individuals, we're going back to the mother church, Peter and John and James. Remember, this isn't James the brother of John, this is James the brother of Jesus. We want them to help settle this question. We must settle this question. Paul and Barnabas do not have the authority that Peter and James and John do as the leaders of the mother. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say the mother church? So, I mean, we, they got to settle this thing. So, being sent on their way by the church, and this is really remarkable, actually, they passed both through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. That's a 250-mile trip from Antioch to Jerusalem. And they're going along the coast of Phoenicia, then straight through Samaria, and they're sharing their gospel. They're telling everything that God's been doing among the Gentiles. And so even as they're headed to Jerusalem, they're doing all this witnessing and all this proclamation of the truth. When they came to Jerusalem, verse 4 now, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Church broadly, roughly 10,000 people. The apostles would be like Peter, John, James, and the elders. These are the leaders of the church. And they declared all that God had done with them, presumably everything that had occurred in the first missionary journey. Now, verse 5 is showing you how deep this issue is. But believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, notice they are believers. The party of the Pharisees. They are Pharisees who have come to faith in Christ. Okay? And that means they now understand that Jesus is the Messiah. This would be a small number. This is not a huge number. But these are individuals, uh, you know this, the Pharisees, or the old Hasidim of the intertestamental period, deeply, deeply committed to the law. And they were the passionate defenders of the law, and they kept saying, you can't do this, you can't go into idolatry, or God's going to send us into exile again. And so they preserved the purity of the law in those 400 years. They're the good guys in those early years. And so now these Pharisees have come to the under, uh, this group, have come to the understanding Jesus is the Messiah. But notice what they say. Rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Whoa. So they're not only saying what that group that had traveled up to Antioch are saying, they're adding something else. Keep the law of Moses. So the, the circumcision issue is one thing, but they add, and to keep the law of Moses, now you distinctly, you distinctly have two Gospels. You distinctly have two, I would, I'll be very strong on this, diametrically opposed Gospels. So what these guys, these, this party of the Pharisees, this relatively small group, that have come to know Christ are saying, you got to go back to all these Gentiles and tell them, you also have to be circumcised and you must commit to obeying the law of Moses or you're not saved. So, I mean, this is, uh, wow, this is, this is fundamentally changing everything. And so the issue that the Jerusalem, which is what we call the Jerusalem Council, the issue is the nature of the gospel. That's the issue. Is it faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it faith in Jesus Christ plus something? And the something is now spelled out pretty specifically in verse 5. So, I mean, this is, this, is, this is a critically divisive issue. And it must be settled. And so um, the, the kind of issue that's involved here is relevant to our day. And what do I mean by that? Anyone that adds anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ is like what was going on here. Okay, you come, you, how do I become a Christian? You put your faith in Jesus Christ, plus you do this. Yeah, I mean, you, you, there are things you must do in, in addition to faith in Jesus Christ. You might, it's faith in Jesus Christ plus reading the works and following the works of Mary Baker, Patterson, Glover Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, which is what they say. Or you come to faith and 
come to faith in Jesus Christ plus follow all the teachings of Joseph Smith. That is, that is a movement today. And they want to call themselves Christian. Or come to faith in Jesus Christ plus follow the teachings of Ellen G. White. Or, I mean, I mean it's anything you want to add. It's adding to it. And this is like false teaching. It's pretty close to it, Woody. I mean, these see these are these are Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus. They understand he's the Messiah, but they're saying in effect, "Now listen, I can't give up fifteen hundred years of my tradition. My dad, my granddad, my great granddad, my great great grand, all of, they all did this. You mean I don't do this anymore?" Yeah, I mean, I, I, none of this? And that's right, you don't. Because, and this is the thesis of the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Everything that's in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Therefore, you don't need it anymore. So it isn't so much a false teaching, as it's a, a prostitution of the simplicity of the gospel. You're saying, we, we just can't give this up. It's too much a part of my identity. It was really interesting. Many of you probably don't read this, but last Sunday in the New York Times, their book review, they had a three-page essay on a series of books that have been written by um, Jew- Jewish leaders in the United States. And they're all Reform or conservative uh, uh, rabbis. And what's interesting about this, every single one of them is trying to address this question. In 2018, what does it mean to be a Jew? And I mean, it was really, I, it was really, it was one of the best things I've read in a long time, because every one of these guys, every one of them, not all, most of them, but every one of them said, "Well, now we no longer believe that we should be looking for the Messiah." This, the, you hear that? We no longer believe that we should be looking for the Messiah. So even, pardon? Why would they say that? Well, see, that's. That's what Reform Judaism has done. Now, the conservative, orthodox, I shouldn't say conservative, the Orthodox Jew, at least most of them, are still looking for a personal Messiah. You know, but the Reform isn't looking for the same crisis. Yeah, that, that's right. Reform Judaism comes out of the 19th century. It's recent in the history of Judaism. It's very recent. But it's trying to accommodate, accommodate diaspora Judaism to the modern world. We don't want to leave the United States. We want to stay in the United States. The United States is our home. So how are we raising our kids? And it was another interesting statistic. is 40%, 40% of Reformed Jews are now marrying non-Jews. Wow. So, I mean, it's just, it, you can see what's happening. It's just the whole identity of what it means to be. A, and, you know, in the United States, it's in the 90th percentile are Reformed conservative Jews. How much? About 90%. Yeah. I mean, you know, the vast uh, Orthodox Jews in the United States live in Brooklyn or they live in Jerusalem. <laughs> they don't live anywhere else. I'm serious. I mean, you know, they don't live, you know, for the, there's a small Orthodox group here in Omaha, but... 50. Huh? Yeah, 50. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's rather typical. You know, St. Louis has a, a little larger, but I mean, for the most part, outside of Brooklyn, most of the Jews in the United States are Reform or conservative. I mean, well, that's more than you need to know. I'm, all I'm saying to you is they're, they're wrestling with this issue 
of what does it mean to be a Jew today? And back here they're saying is, I've been a Jew, my, my great, 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 all the way back to Moses and Abraham are all Jews, and you're saying I've got to give all this up? And I'm saying, no, it's part of my identity. And we're the, we're, the, we're the covenant people, for goodness sake. This all came from us. Because that, uh, that old statement, which was very true in this century, as it is today, Christianity is Jewish. You should agree with that statement. Christianity is Jewish because the foundation of our faith is the 39 books of the Old Testament. Because the 39 books of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ and provide the foundation of what we believe. So, I mean, it's, it, and I'm telling you more, but yet I'm not telling this is really foundational to the, the way you start to put together your worldview and your understanding of the 66 books of the Bible. Those 39 books aren't irrelevant. Those 39 books are extremely relevant because it helps us to understand that God's redemptive program starts in Genesis 3.15 and it is fulfilled and completed. That's when God makes that promise after Adam and Eve sinned. Out of the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so, you know, there's that promise, and that, of course, that seed then is defined as you get further into the Old Testament as the son of David, as the Messiah, and then you open the New Testament and you see who that is. So um, this is really, this is a crucial issue. Christianity is Jewish. But to be a Christian, I get to give up all this now? But no, Peter, Peter really answers it well. That's though. it. Yeah. That's why when Peter stands up and Peter answers this, it settles the issue. Joel, you had your hand up. Oh, I was just, I mean, you had pointed out, you know, Christian science and Mormonism and some other groups like that. But I mean, even in evangelical Christianity today, there's there's legalism and other things. That's right. We kind of think, well, you that's have to right. say, but now you have to do this too. That's right. I mean, you can fill in the blank with exactly whether it's playing cards or dancing or mm-hmm. wearing bright lipstick or mm-hmm. wearing, you know, I mean, they're the things that were part of my world when I was yeah, 1950. Was that were the, I mean, they were the issue. But that, I mean, is, is that, I mean, I'm not equating those things to this, but I mean, there's still that. I mean, it seems like no, it's a lot of different groups. Have no, had that, that's that right. That's right. So it under, is under that, then you couldn't be saved on your deathbed if you came to faith, truly came to faith, because you didn't have a chance to do your deed. That's right. That's right. And that's not right. That's right. Well, yeah. well see, it, it, and this is what the Apostle Paul, when he begins his writings, and you'll see it in his first book, which is Galatians, which was written right before the Jerusalem Council. His book of Galatians was written right before this event. He, what's his key word? Grace. The word he uses is grace. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace through faith you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gospel is focused on the grace of God, and you appropriate all that by faith, plus nothing else. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient unto you. So, I, I was getting a little animated there, but do, do you understand that the issue from these first five verses is really zeroing in on what is the gospel? What is it that we're to take to the world? This group, this relatively, you assume it's a relatively small group in the Jerusalem church is saying, we can't give up these things. This is who we are. This is our identity. 
This is what we're going to ask the Gentiles to do, who become Christians. You've got to be circumcised, if you're not circumcised, to own the covenant, and you've got to observe the Mosaic Law. So they missed the point that you're a new being in Christ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, and it, this is why the book of Hebrews, for a Jewish person, the book of Hebrews was so crucial in the first century. Because the author of the book of Hebrews says this has all been fulfilled. <clears throat> So you, you, you set it aside because it's been fulfilled. It's not that it's bad or evil. Oh, my, i got to give up this. No, 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 it's fulfilled. You were and still are important to God. The Jewish people are very important. He has an unconditional, you know, I don't cover it with them. But at the same time, Jesus fulfilled all of this. So now the new order has begun. We're Jew and Gentile together at the cross which is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So this is, they've got to make this break. And how Peter, testimony handled, and then James's compromise is how they do it. Jim. So did they see circumcision as a demonstration they've entered into the covenant? Yes. The keeping of the law as a preservation of their salvation? Uh, I'm not sure how I, I mean, you're asking, that's a great question the, the answer to your first part of your question would be absolutely yes it's a little more difficult it's a little more difficult to understand what are they really saying when they say keep the law of Moses the whole law all the sacrifices all the feast days I mean and that it's not it, it's not spelled out here, but it's generally stated. So at least it would seem that it would be keeping keeping the sacrifices, because you say they all are fulfilled in Christ. That's right. But let's keep them. It, it's a way to show people and demonstrate to people that Jesus fulfilled all this. But Jim, wasn't the sacrifices that they made Old Testament weren't weren't those for sin and atonement for sin? Uh, recognizing that they hadn't been able to keep the whole law and who had been able to keep the whole law. But just like you observe communion as a celebration and remembrance of what Jesus did, I as a Jew and am asking you to keep the sacrifices as show that Jesus fulfilled all these. That gives a greater understanding of his work. <laughs> I have trouble with that. <laughs> but that's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And there's a group of there's a group of Christians today, and some of it's coming out of Messianic Judaism, that is saying we yeah. should keep a lot of the traditions. The church should be observing the Feast of Tabernacles, should be observing the Feast of Booths. To the point of salvation? Or just, as well, see, that's, that's, it's one of the real, because you listen to some of these, so I have a couple of friends, I, there was a guy here in, uh, it was a head of an E-free church. This goes back a number of years ago. Head of an E-free church. He got into this. He started reading it. He went to seminars. And he tried to lead the whole church into this kind of a status. And most of the people in the church said, no, we're not doing this. Church split. And he's passed away now. But it was really a, it's just an example. That, that I don't see anything in the New Testament that commands us to keep these old Old Testament, you know, the, the laws, traditions or practices as a reminder of the richness of our heritage and all that Jesus has done for us. But it, I, 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 I observe this and see how Jesus fulfilled it. Yes. 
Jim. And that, that, that's just, that, that really, and the problem with that is, and this has absolutely happened, it, and what Joel was mentioning a little bit ago, it turns into almost a legalism, where now you must do this. If you don't do this, you're not a fulfilled Christian. But if you do do it, it doesn't make you not a Christian. It's an no. option. If they want to yeah, do it, they it, can do it, right? It's, that's, it's the struggle there, Woody, with that. Because if you're doing it, it meaning some of these traditions and so on, do you have the freedom to do that? Uh, you know, yeah, the Bible does not specifically say exactly what a Sunday morning worship service is supposed to look like. You know, there's no bulletin in the New Testament. That tells you it doesn't, you know, tremendous freedom. But if you are going to observe some of these, I'll tell you, Woody, you have to really be careful how you lead your people in this and helping them to understand why we are doing this. You know what I mean? So it's just, and this is one of the real challenges well, you I have. Mean, it's a personal choice. I would well, that's think. what it, it, not it, anything that you'd want to do. I, in and of itself, that would not necessarily be a sin. I don't think so. Right. But it then becomes, how does this affect what you're saying to others? Because what this man did in this, this E-Free Church I mentioned a while ago, this goes back now a couple of decades, but he was saying, we must do this. We really, this is what God's call now is, we must do this. And it just... Justification of self versus the, the grace of God. Fulfilling the sense of righteousness. I'm sorry. Fulfilling the sense of righteousness. Yeah, yeah. So when you do something, you feel good about yourself, yeah. and then yeah. it is your works, and you start reflecting on how good you are or not. Well, see, that's that's it. it. And it, it, what what this becomes too is, and this is this is really dangerous, and that's very much where he was. At. These become the means and methods of sanctification. So okay, I believe it by grace through faith in Christ, but. Keeping all the tenets of the law, or some of the tenets, is a is a key part of sanctification, uh, and that again, that is just uh, it, it's really uh, it becomes so complicated, and the danger then is again setting up. If you don't do this, you're not fully sanctified. And if you bring these and, things in, Jim, we are creatures of habit, yes. and and we like to see these objective manifestations mm-hmm. of worship, and if some some Sunday, one of them isn't present, we go, where are we headed, maybe? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can see that happening where that's a real danger when you get to that point where you're having certain ceremonial practices and then one of them's omitted or maybe you don't do any of them, you know, because of how we're, how he's made us. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, if you, I've taught on this in churches and so on, and maybe some of you have been to a Seder, like often at Easter they'll have, you know, when I lived in Dallas, there was a guy who, who did that, very, very well, and uh, you go through the whole Passover meal, and all he's doing is you saying each one of these things is fulfilled in Jesus, and it enriches your understanding of all Jesus did, and how all the Old Testament just points to Jesus. And so it enriches that. That's a good thing. And to teach on it or preach on it, you know, I, you know, that's a hard thing to do. But to preach through the book of Leviticus, especially the first nine chapters with all the sacrifices and so on, to do that in such a way enriches our understanding of all that Jesus did. But boy, that's hard slogging. Oh, my goodness. 
how do you keep people excited about the burnt offerings? And you know, oh my goodness, it's just then you explain it all and in detail, but it enriches all of the understanding of this is how the ancient Israelite walked with God. This was this was how they they still were justified by faith. This is how they walked with God because they understood God is taking care of their sin every single day. The burnt offerings, free will offerings, the peace offerings, all of that. This is how you walk with God. And that's the, the, the wonder of the New Testament is we don't have to do that anymore. Book of Hebrews, Jesus was a once for all sacrifice. Once for all. We don't need to do this anymore. May I go on? Yes. Oh, it's 25 over already. He's got a question here. Oh, I'm sorry. And this may really sound goofy, but <clears throat> did the Jewish people that were becoming Christians yes. look at God the Father with the circumcision and you know, giving those commands and then as Jesus as two different or was it they look at the Trinity as one or did they did they think God the Father has power yet over Jesus the Son who do we believe <laughs> is, I don't, I mean, I don't, well that was one of the things that followed uh, and, I mean there's no simple way to answer your question but follows your, your, your decision to trust Christ is an understanding of the nature of God and the relationship of Jesus to the Father. I mean, that he's the Son is something that's taught in the Old Testament. That the Messiah would be the Son of God is not a new teaching. That's not a foreign teaching to a Jew. That, that's an easy thing for them to understand because it's kind of all over the, New Testament, all the Old Testament. But to... Understand then, uh, I'll put it this way, Ed, to understand the theology of the Trinity follows your conversion. You, you understand what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's that you just you, you understand who Christ is. You understand he is your Messiah. I'm talking as a Jew now, that he is the Messiah and so on. And all those messianic passages where like Psalm 110, verse first two verses, which is a crucial verse, or even showing the nature of God as Trinity in those two Old Testament verses. That's very easy for a Jew to understand. Yahweh is the Father. In this, Yahweh says to Adonai, my Adonai. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all the earth your footstool. Paul quotes, that's the most quoted psalm in the Old, New Testament. The Jewish person is not going to have any trouble understanding the theology of that. But the idea of God as Trinity is not required for salvation. It follows it. I mean, you you come to understand the nature of God. Who is he? And so on. You don't say, okay, here's a theology book on the incommunicable attributes of God. Read them, memorize them, come back, see if you have any questions, then you'll be ready for salvation. I mean, that isn't how it works. You know, because if that was required, nobody would ever become a Christian. Because one thing, nobody would ever go home and read it. And two, number two, nobody would ever go and read it and completely understand it. So the concept of the deity of Jesus already exists in the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, it's it's there, very much so. The deity of Messiah. Now, you know, Mark, whether every single every single person in, in the Jewish faith reading that is going to understand it that way, that's another question. But I mean that's why the old sorry the New Testament quotes so often all of these texts Psalm 2 verse 7 Psalm 110 verse 1 2 they're quoted over and over again to show what 
Peter says it, Paul says it, this shows that in the Old Testament, I'm paraphrasing, in the Old Testament's teaching of the, the hypostatic union of Christ, undiminished deity plus perfect humanity, united one person. It sort of teaches, oh yeah, it does, that's true. I mean, it's just, it's that kind of, it's there. And it's, I mean, even, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I could go on with this, but I'm going to—I'm losing about half of you, so I don't want to do that. Can I at least read verse six? Yeah. I want to hear what Peter said. Okay. All right. Now you understand the issue. The apostles and the elders—now these would be the leaders in Jerusalem—gathered together, consider this matter. You could translate that to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, oh, that's a, there's that word again. It's a great word. Guys, they're not, they're not treating this superficially. They are spending a lot of time with careful reasoning, thoughtful analysis of this issue. They're not treating this in a superfluous or, or just you know, shallow manner. They are really taking this serious. So after we don't know how long this went on, after there had been much debate, hours, a couple of days, we don't know. And then, Woody already had read ahead. He's, he's a good student. He's always reading ahead. Peter stood up and said. Now, why is it important that Peter stood up? He needs to get their attention. Okay, I mean, he gets their attention, but why? What is it about Peter? Yeah, I mean, he was part of the inner circle of three. He was the one Jesus has said, I'm going to build my rock on your confession, a church on your confession. All of the, I mean, Peter was just always the guy who kind of spoke for everybody. You know, whenever the disciples wanted somebody to speak, Peter would speak for them. He was always kind of the spokesman for the disciples. Plus, something happened to him in Acts 10 that must be shared here. So Peter stood up. Now, I don't know how far we're going to be able to get into this. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. Now, though he's referring to A.D. 38, when he's in Joppa, as he's going to make that clear in the next two verses, he's referring to that event that happened to him in Joppa in A.D. 38, about 11 years ago that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's what he learned. Remember in Acts 10? He's there in Simon the Tanner's uh, uh, house, and he's standing on the roof, and this, this um, uh, well, it's like a sheet, it's a hard word to translate, comes down, filled with all kinds of animals, many of them unclean, non-kosher. And the angel says, eat. He says, I can't do that, they're unclean. And to paraphrase, the angel says, knock it off. The new order has begun. That's irrelevant. That used to be important. It isn't anymore. Because this has all been fulfilled. In the new order, kosher food doesn't mean anything. In the new order, circumcision doesn't mean... Paul will have the audacity to say in his writing, circumcision is meaningless because of the new order. And so Peter is saying, what I learned in Joppa in A.D. 38 was that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, them meaning the Gentiles, 
by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Remember that when we studied that, we made that point. In Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, every group experiences salvation and the coming of the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way. So that there's no spiritual elite. And so he's saying that. And he made no distinction between us and them. That's really important. Yeah. There's no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now that phrase, cleansed their hearts, is right out of the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 36, 26, that whole passage. That's the new order. The coming of the Holy Spirit who cleanses them, washes them with the water of regeneration, cleanses them. As you were cleansed, they're cleansed. You both come to faith in Christ. You both receive a Holy Spirit in exactly the same way. There's no longer distinction. And so Peter is is using that language. These are Jewish people. They would get that immediately. He doesn't have to explain it. They know exactly what he's saying. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It's the yoke of legalism. Jesus said, this is, this is paraphrasing Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you, ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Remember that? That's what he's appealing to. How dare you put God to the test and challenge what he's doing? You're doing exactly the same thing your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers did in making the Jewish faith a legalistic burden for people. Our fathers couldn't make it work, and you and I couldn't make it work. Jesus freed us from all that. Almost what he's saying is you're going backward instead of forward. You're saying the future of the church is going backward. No, it's not. The new order has begun. We're cleansed, washed, regeneration in exactly the same way. The Holy Spirit has come in exactly the same way. There's no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Knock it off. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will be. There's the word. Grace. Grace and legalism are mutually exclusive. I really wanted to get through this. That's why I kept rushing. (laughs) The deathbed confession of someone who you're sharing you're you're sharing the testament and faith with in the last moment of their life not having done all of this, which right. they say you have to keep this, you have That's to. Right. This person can't get up off their deathbed and keep any of that. They're going to die in the next minute. And his grace through their faith is sufficient. Mm-hmm. And they will be in heaven. Just doesn't matter whether they're circumcised or they kept the law, doesn't matter. All that matters is did they place their faith in Jesus Christ? That's all that matters. And you can do that in the last minutes of your life.
God forbid that you wait that long, but that's often the case. No, that's absolutely right. See, this is, the, this is what the death knell of legalism is understanding grace. I think there's a significance of saying that the Pharisees said that because they just want to keep the jobs. <laughs> well, I I don't I don't know if I can I I don't know if I can say that completely because I mean we you know some of these I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get you to understand this the, the believers who are the party of the Pharisees they have become believers but they're struggling with do I have to give up everything and these people who are coming you know who used to worship Zeus and Hermes and all this other stuff. Paganism, rank, raw paganism. And I'm, my whole heritage is the inside track with God, the one true creator, living God. And you're telling me I've got to give up all this stuff? I have to settle this aside? Yes, because it's been fulfilled. And the new order is the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and the coming Holy Spirit. The new order's begun. Knock it off. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the new order because Christ fulfilled all this. I mean, that's the perspective that brings freedom for the Jewish person. I think I, told, I went to seminary, to grad school, with two, two guys who were Jewish guys, one from New Jersey, one from Chicago. And, I mean, those guys, they were the neatest guys to be around, because, I mean, they both would always say, we're fulfilled Jews. I mean, they understood how everything, but you know, the one guy, the other one, was, it didn't happen to the other. One of the guys from New Jersey, his, his parents disowned him. They didn't want anything to do with him. From their vantage point, he was dead. And his prayer was that, that his parents would come to know Christ before they died. And I heard not too long ago from him, uh, his, mom, his mom trusted Christ about, Three or four years after he graduated from seminary, his father came to his father accepted Jesus as Messiah on his deathbed. He was dying. He was, you know, I don't know. He was eighty some years old, as I recall. Larry saying it was just so. I mean, Larry's prayer was answered, but he waited for decades to see his dad come to faith. And it was only, I think, he said four years after seminary, his mom came to know the Lord. But. I mean, it's just, it's, it, because it is so hard, it is so difficult for a Jewish person to really, because they've been taught for, for you know, almost 2,000 years, Jesus was an errant rabbi. He's not the Messiah. And so, you know, that's just this tremendous liberating teaching of who Jesus is. Well, I rushed, but we, I wanted to get, I didn't want to start Peter's uh, uh, defense and then, you know, get halfway through it. I want to get it all done. We'll summarize a little more of it next week. And then, then I want to, and I want to look at what James does. James, his brother of Jesus, stands up, and he proposes a compromise. But after, after quoting from the Old Testament, he takes us back of all places to Amos 4 and ties all this together. It's really neat. It's just, this is, a, this is a neat chapter. I hope you're with me on all this. Is everybody pretty well tracking? So your thought paper is, in 500 words or less, summarize Peter's argument. Can we uh, say a little something for Jim uh, Zepke? Yeah, how's he doing? Uh, well, we don't know. But we I haven't. So, but we know he's got prostate cancer. Right, right. And I know he's... He, uh, Jim emailed me this, uh, this week, and uh, he... Uh, 
he's very much looking up and putting his faith uh, to work. And uh, I think his spirit is good, his heart is good, and his wife is standing by him. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and the, the chemo is is taking its toll. I, yeah, I, I, he he's in one of my uh, one of classes I'm teaching at church, and um, you know he's lost all his hair and all that. But the last time I saw him, it was at the class. He said this one was a rough one. I'm really having trouble with this. So, and he knew that because what he has two more to go, or two more to go. Is, is it five to go? I don't know. No, I think yeah, I think he has two more to go yet, I th- or maybe not just one, but maybe one. Each one he's gotten, and now I know it's often in nature. Well, yeah, anyway, let's pray for him. Hey, Jim, can I offer? Uh, yeah, my, my uh, niece's husband is gravely ill with cancer, mm-hmm. and um, I was talking to my brother and asked him if he'd come to have Jesus as yeah. his savior. And my brother still doesn't know if he has well, accepted him. Okay, so it's and your, if we could, my niece's your niece's husband. husband. Gotcha. That's what my biggest concern about him is. is Absolutely. Gosh, I hope he does. Absolutely. I have a friend who um, was admitted to the hospital today. He's uh, fought pancreatic cancer for two and a half years. I've I've spoken to him about Christ. Mm. He still can't quite conceptualize it. He he Mm. knows. He knows all the answers. He knows he's read extensively, but just can't turn the corner. Let's pray right now. Dear Lord, thank you for our time and the Word of God this afternoon. We thank you for this powerful chapter 15. I hope the men really understand what the issue is and how Peter's masterful, masterful uh, speech, or if not a sermon really, his address, his, his, his argument that he presents really settles the issue. It's so clear what uh, what God is doing now, and to stand in the way of God, to lay on Gentiles the same burden that Jesus talked about in Matthew 11. They couldn't keep it, and Peter said, we can't keep it. How dare you do this? It's by grace and grace alone. So thank you for the tremendous clear message that even Peter's address gives, and just the clear message of the gospel. It's simple in that sense. It's by grace through faith and nothing else. We do pray for Jim as he's going through these chemo treatments. Uh, sustain him, Lord, with your grace. Uh, strengthen him. We, we pray that these will be successful in bringing the cancer into remission. And just sustain him by giving strength, help him, because the, the body is so racked by chemo. It's so difficult, but it often achieves its objectives, and we pray for that. Strengthen him each day, even for tomorrow. I hope he and his family can have a good Thanksgiving together. We pray for Ed's um, niece's husband, um, who is uh, struggling with cancer now, apparently very serious, and he, he's just not the certainty that he's come to faith in Christ. So we pray to that end. We pray that you would work in his heart. Lord, do not, our prayer would be, do not let him pass away without first coming to faith in Christ. And I pray the same thing for, for Fred's friend uh, with pancreatic cancer. Uh, he knows the truth. He knows the, 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 the words of the gospel. He knows what needs to be done. But it's an act of his will. It's a battle of his will. So, Lord, would you break that down? Would your Holy Spirit pierce his heart and just enable him to make that decision of faith before he passes away? We do not want him to go into eternity without Christ. So we pray for that. So, Lord, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. We're so grateful we live in a country where there is a national day of Thanksgiving. It's not just about good food and football games.
It's about a time of genuinely thanking you for the blessings of this last year. Regardless of, of what has happened, we still serve a God who's good and a God who has promised us many, many things, and you're a God who will keep your promises. So thank you for our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.